I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I pay too much. I am the king of the ring. You found it. It's the Japan Wood Podcast, episode 124. And I am your host, MatthewPMBigelow.com, coming at you from the hybrid studios in the heart of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. The armpit armpit of Canada? Canada. I don't know. Uh, I'm in Canada on... uh, on vacation here, visiting family, got a lot of time off. Uh, someone who's on corporate welfare, I seem to have a lot of time on my hands. So just catching up with the family, some friends and all that. And uh, I've been keeping up to date with the overall trends. This podcast, the Japan Web Podcast, is, of course, the podcast that covers AI markets in Japan, uh, rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific, Society 5.0, news analysis, odd items, and more. It's all that type of stuff. You're not going to find any anime or or a lot of pop culture here, so we're just trying to sit at the big boy table or the big people table or the people kind table. If you catch that reference, and if I'm in Canada, maybe you will. I went and saw last night the Crash Test Dummies. They were a band, well, they are a band, but they rose to insane prominence in the early 90s with some hits like uh, Superman Never Made Any Money, Superman Never Made Any Money, Saving the World from Solomon Grande. Uh, and then the other popular song they have was called mm-hmm. uh, Maybe you recognize it. Yeah, once there was this girl who got into an accident and couldn't come to school and win. All that type of stuff. Great show, by the way. Um, fantastic show. I've been listening to them semi-consistently for the past 30 years. And about 25 years ago, the lead singer, Brad Roberts, was doing an acoustic tour of Canada. And I went with some friends of mine to check him out. The venue didn't do any promotion. So it was like 20 people, uh, you know, to see this legend of Canada. He finishes his set. We go and buy some scotch from the bar and bring it back and give it to him. And we're chatting out with Brad Roberts from the Crash Test Dummies and like having a conversation. Uh, he's always been a bit like, um, I don't know, curmudgeonly, I would say, uh, interacting with myself that one time and also at the show yesterday. Uh, I remember um, like just being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in my early 20s and be like, wow, what's it like to be on a record label, Mr. Roberts? And he's like, it fucking sucks. And he downed the scotch we bought him and turned away. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, yesterday as well, managed to get an exchange out of him, although it wasn't intentional at all. It was like the last song. We were all cheering for an encore. And uh, it was like a great show. Full band, um, amazing musicians. I really like their songs. They played most of their hits, and they did some, like, Christmas carols, and I thought it was fine. I, you know, I would have liked to have heard some of their other songs. But um, as everybody's, like, finished clapping and sitting down, I, I, in, like, if it was three seconds earlier, nobody would have heard me, but it was at that moment where the crowd sort of instinctively hushes and the crash test dummies are coming back on stage to play an encore. 
and the drummer is not there. And as I'm sitting down, I just noticed the drummer is not there. And I'm like, oh, where's the drummer? But that's when the whole crowd went silent. And I hadn't, I didn't want to troll them. I'm not into trolling live musicians. If they want it, you can. Like when the singer, when the backup singer, Ellen, the was like, like jumping around at the front of the stage and like shaking her arms and was like trying to rile up the crowd. I said, bring it, you know, but that's not trolling. That's just like going, Grr. Uh, but I was like, where's the drummer? As that's kind of how it came out because I was sitting down in my seat. Oh, where's the drummer? That's when the whole crowd went silent. And Brad Roberts, the singer of the Crash Test Dummies, kind of looked towards the audience and, and he just said, hey, fuck off, dude. The guy's taking a break. <laughs> I was like, oh, geez. Sorry, Mr. Roberts. <laughs> but he told me to go fuck myself. That's twice when he used the F word in, in, in direct to my, uh, uh, to my voice, you know, 25 years ago. What's it like to be on a record label, Mr. Roberts? It fucking sucks. Oh, where's the drummer? Fuck you, buddy. He's taking a break. <laughs> but then this morning I looked up on Twitter just to see, you know, if anybody reacted. And I was like, crash test dummies. And the first thing that pops up is Jordan B. Peterson was at this concert. This is, I'm in, I'm in the Comox Valley, which is not that big of a place. This was like a 500 seater place. And it's the biggest place you'll find for miles and miles and miles. And yeah, he, uh, Jordan B. Peterson was apparently like, a few meters away from me taking pictures of Brad Roberts and the crash test dummies live. And I was like, I didn't see him. <laughs> but anyways, that's the second time where some super famous person, I kind of had like, uh, you know, the same concert. The other one was Haruki Murakami in Tokyo. When I saw him at a jazz concert, can't remember the pianist's name, but it was like a reunion concert. And she had a song called never let me go. And Haruki Murakami and Kazuo Ishiguro, another Kazuo Ishiguro is a, technically a British citizen, but he spent the first few years, years of his life in Japan. Uh, through through the, the song Never Let Me Go, this jazz pianist, there's like a Harukumi connect, Har, 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 Haruki Murakami connection to um, uh, Ishiguro connection to name one of Ishiguro's major novels, Never Let Me Go, which was turned into a huge Hollywood hit movie. Um, so that's kind of interesting there too. So yeah. Uh, just a little trivia, kicking off the uh, the season's greetings here, the, the Japan What podcast, episode 124, some celebrity trivia, and uh, run-ins with the super famous, uh, watching uh, mid-level famous people perform their songs that used to be super famous 35 years ago. Still, amazing show. Uh, Got to thank my dad for buying me the tickets and taking me out. Thanks, Dad. Shout out to Dad. Let's get in with the podcast here. Uh, we're going to begin here. We got a lot to cover. Again, we're busy. We're busy, busy beavers to pick it up from the, um, Canadian perspective. And, uh, by the way, a lot of people are, um, really, really sick of the, the woke government here. Like it's permeating the culture pretty deeply, but we'll get into that labor later. Maybe I'm not sure, but we're going to begin today with, um, the kanji of the year. Now, the kanji of the year is like the, it kind of encapsulates the overall feeling of the year in Japan. Of course, kanji is the 
the the sim the symbol system that Japanese people use, which is based on the Chinese system, and it's those characters where you combine tree and like water, and then like um, something like a fire, and it means like uh, please be the best person you can be. You're like what? Okay, so. Character for tax picked as kanji of 2023. <laughs> Tokyo. This comes to us from December 12th, and we're recording this on December 13th. The kanji for tax, pronounced zei, was chosen as the single most representative character symbolic of the social mood in Japan this year. A Kyoto-based organization said Tuesday. This comes to us from japantoday.com via... Oh, it's from Japan Today. They wrote it themselves. In Kyoto, Chief Buddhist Priest Seihan Mori, I wonder how much he's worth, of Kiyomizu Temple drew the character with a giant calligraphy brush on washi, or Japanese paper. It was 1.5 meters high and 1.3 meters wide at the famous location. If you've been to Kyoto, you've probably been to Kiyomizu uh, Dera. The selection for the 29th annual poll run by the Japan Kanji Aptitude Testing Foundation is based on votes cast by the general public. The foundation received uh, 147,878 answers. Zay, or tax, had the highest number with 5,976. The second most popular was Kanji, for Kanji was hot because we had this super hot summer, which got 5,571 votes. The third with 5,000 was War, followed by Tora, Tiger, meaning the Hanshin Tigers winning the Japan series. Um, and it kind of goes on from there, but very interesting that uh, the Prime Minister of Japan is known as the Four-Eyed Tax Hiker, and uh, I think that's because most people don't understand just how deeply embedded the uh, current LDP government is with the um, uh, World Economic Forum and, and all those kind of globalist agendas where it sucks everything out of your country, gives it to people promising you everything. They give you nothing in return, but some nice dashboards or symbols that you can parade around town that make you look a nice, look like a nice person, like a social development goals wheel and all of that. So the malaise of these um, policies are spreading through the country and are popping up at the most holiest of sites in the form of the kanji for tax. And that's one idea for the kanji, for the kanji of, of the year. year. We're just going to briefly go through some um, very quick a headlines that cover the Japan uh, bedlam, not bedlam, just overview. Now, the first one I'm going to introduce just as a general thing, but I'm all in support of, and it's not because I'm virtue signaling, all 47 prefectures in Japan to have same-sex partnership systems in 2024. Now, I've been, I've been always like around people with alternative lifestyles or people with uh, from the, the LGBTQ community, as it's called now. We never called it that 20 years ago. It was the, the first it was like the gay and lesbian society. And then it was like, oh, there's gay people and there's lesbians. And it was like the lesbian and gays. And then it kind of went on from there. Uh, and I've always just like, okay, who I don't care who you are as long as we can work together and make cool stuff or get things done. 
don't care, whatever. I don't care at all. Um, however, the recent politicization of these groups, it almost is like, wow, you really have to show you care all the time. And I'm not into that. It's just like, you do what you do, and but I'm not going to, I'm not, I've decided I don't really march for anything. So I'm not going to be the marcher guy. But the reason why I support same sex partnership is because I think it's the best way just to get beyond it. Just to like, okay, you can get yourselves married now. But I also support institutions that don't want to do those weddings for same sex partnerships. Not because I support anti-same-sex partnership temples or churches or religious institutions, I want to know who they are so that people can decide to support them or not support them however they want to. It, I'm a, like an opt-in situation here where it's just like, okay, you support same-sex partnerships at this temple? Well, congratulations. You're going to get a lot of money from those seeking same-sex partnerships. Congratulations. Good for you. Oh, you don't want it? Well, you're going to miss out on this market, but maybe you'll find something else and maybe you won't have to accommodate certain things that you're not used to. I don't personally care. I I, I would have a, a same-sex partnership wedding and something that I worked at or was a part of, don't, I would volunteer. But this whole idea of just like this whole like the victim status and the like we got a reparations and it just leads into so much activism what if everybody was just equal? I consider the right to have same-sex partnerships as of like a taxation thing makes sense to me. Um, and it's like, well, they're not going to have babies. Yeah. You know what the average birth rate for women in Tokyo is right now? One. You know who's not having babies? Straight people. So this whole argument that that's like the reason to have babies doesn't exist anymore. So I think that's good news overall. And not because I want to be rah-rah. Yes, I'm going to get my pride flag out and post some Twitter things. It's just like, let's just get over it. Let's try to move beyond it, make it all equal, so we can just get on with our lives. Fukushima nuclear plant worker exposed to radiation. Of course, we're told that it's all safe, it's all great, it's all safe, it's all great. But then uh, some worker is wearing his protective gear or her protective gear. And one thing happens and they, they get scanned on their way out and they're like, oh, you got all this radiation on your face. What are we going to do about that? Probably send you to the hospital and hush hush this as much as possible. Uh, and we're like, okay, but all the water coming out of this place is going to be safe because the Fukushima nuclear power plant, the Daiichi there, is releasing, you know, approved amounts of water into the um, Pacific Ocean right now. And it's considered to be safer than safe and less than less than other places around the world. But at the same time, okay, is it all safe? Next, U.S. roller coaster. Sorry, not U.S. Universal Studios Japan USJ roller coaster suddenly stops, leaving passengers suspended in the air for over an hour. Now, I'm going to get some of these pictures and post them onto the website at MatthewPMBigelow.com. You can check it out there. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. And it will you'll be able to see a bunch of people uh, waiting patiently as the rescue operations are underway. No one was hurt. Everyone's safe. But everybody, <laughs> these people were suspended upside down. You're upside down. It's like it's like somebody takes a chair, wraps a belt around your legs, and then attaches the chair to the ceiling of um, your uh, car 
upside down and then like runs around town at 150 miles an hour or, you know, 220 kilometers an hour. And, uh, but it's like, you're on this giant slope and there's no car beneath you and you just stop. And now you're up on this giant crest of a roller coaster upside down, stopped. And you're looking down at the rescue workers and they have these ladders that come up and they're going, boop, 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 boop. You know, thinking, I better not fall out of this fucking seat before they get to me. But they're all safe. Hilarious. So that is Japan in a nutshell. I'll just play the horns again. I'm in my backup studio, the hybrid studios in the Comox Valley of uh, Vancouver Island, BC, Canada. And I'm also with my backup gear. So we might just have to just say horns. Next, we're going to take a look at Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0 A technology-based, human-centered society. Industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. All right, so the Japan Society 5.0 initiative is a Japanese government initiative launched in 2016, 17, around then. I got wind of it maybe around 17, 18, 2018, when I was working as a uh, teacher at a Japanese, one of the major Japanese telecommunications networks, kind of running this weird AI school where I would just research AI, IoT, markets, trends. The company was in the midst of in investing $100 billion into the AI markets, and I was just like, I'd follow it, report on it show what was going on to the students who were AI engineers or telecommunications engineers or wireless communications experts or R&D or cybersec, cybersecurity guys. And some of the people were high up in the company as well, like at the um, VP level. And I never got like secret information from them or anything because they're very tight about it. But I just could tell what was valuable and non-valuable information. And when I came across Society 5.0, it's like the the CEO of the company apparently has all of these scriptures from the Meiji era of Japan, which is a massive um, industrialization of, of Japan. And it's like, well, we're at this point now where we can also transform the society. And then like, so they want to make a new society. And I'm like, well, that's something I should be interested in. I mean, if I'm going to be part of this new society, I wonder what they are doing. So that's kind of how I have to preface it every episode because people are tuning in again, like who have never listened to this podcast before, even though we're on podcast 124, I just like to explain it as such. And you know, who knows? I'll be, I might be able to become more succinct in the future, uh, but let's take a look. Um, 
So in, in recent weeks, the, the, the idea behind Japan Society 5.0 is that there's essentially two factions now, um, the uh, bureaucratic faction and the let's get her done faction. And the bureaucratic faction is totally winning in my perspective because they have, they have the decision-making capabilities and we're living in this bureaucratic era right now. And they are intensely um, shifting. Like if you listen to that uh, jingle or that theme music I played for Japan Society 5.0, which was made by the Japanese government, they're talking about flying cars, medicine, drone delivery, all of these things. But recently what what's happening is it's just like self uh, UN-based self-development uh, SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and that's, that's it. And then, so the major, uh, business lobbies in Japan are like, yes, yeah, society 5.0 means SDGs now. And, and so they've kind of forgotten about this whole original intent or they've captured it essentially. And they said, that's too hard to make all of that. We will just transform all of these ideas into bureaucratic initiatives, suck up all the money distributed amongst ourselves, call ourselves awesome for even trying, and then nothing will happen, but we will continue these initiatives because we have so much funding to do so. And then there's the other faction, the engineers, who are like, hey, why don't I just piece together these little, like, little robots and put some uh, wireless communication things in them, and they can uh, you know, help with rice farming and uh, harvesting and things like that because there's not enough rice farming. It's grueling work. It can help out with that. Let's just try and put it out there and see what happens. So those are like the two factions. Um, now, the company that I worked at, I'll just say it was SoftBank. It's not like it's a big deal. I'm not, I'm not like some whistleblower dude. I like the company. I support the company. And it's just like, okay, and now I'm a podcaster taking some of that knowledge that I learned from researching the AI markets into the podcasting sphere. So I think it's just like, okay. But so you might look at this um, uh, this article here. Driving buses could be running on public roads by year end. Now, you might say to yourself, hey, wait a minute, this guy, he just said there's the bureaucratic side, and then there's the let's get her done side, and there is a let's get her done side in the SoftBank culture as a whole. Like, they just want to break into markets, uh, reap a whole bunch of market cap, make make massive money on the ROI, and just try a whole bunch of crazy-ass shit. It's really interesting the, what goes on inside there. Um, but the the bureaucratic stranglehold results in situations such as this. So this comes to us from the Asahi Shimbum Asia and Japan Watch from December 7th, 2023. We're recording this, of course, on December 13th. Not the newest news, but this is not a breaking news podcast. I don't like breaking news. I don't like having to be like, hey, this thing happened. Let's talk about it for three hours now on Twitter Spaces. And let's, let's all talk at the same time. I really hate it. It's more like analysis. Self-driving buses are set to start operating on public roads in Japan as early as the year-end, carrying the possibility of alleviating a nationwide driver shortage. Now, this nationwide driver shortage might be um, self-induced to try to bring in these new technologies under this bureaucratic weight. The move would enable one employee to operate multiple vehicles, raising hopes such buses could be the quote-unquote saviors of a dwindling public transportation network. 
Boldly Inc., a subsidiary of SoftBank Corp., unveiled its Arma self-driving electronic vehicle to the media on November 16th. The Transport Ministry approved it in late October as a Level 4 vehicle. Of course, Level 4 is a self-autonomous driving, sorry, autonomous driving scale. Zero is totally analog. Five is totally, um, uh, you know, anonymous or autonomous. Level four might have some human intervention capabilities and, and things like that. And from the regulatory, like this technology has basically been established for the past 10 years, but the regulatory aspects with all the lawyers and the local laws and how to implement it and make it safe and how to make sure that you're not just um, copy and pasting one um one one way of driving in one part of the country into another part of the country because localization is such a big deal for self-driving cars like if you put them on highways national highways they're not going to the national highways are not going to change much from north to south or east to west except for weather conditions like snow and such but when you have localized roads that have been there for how many years based on whatever wildlife was growing there before you can't just copy and paste something from southern Kyushu and put it into northern Hokkaido and hope it works. People are going to die. You can't have that. Um, so, Boldly Inc., the subsidiary, uh, is level four. So, a rating of level four on the five-level scale for automatic driving technology means the vehicle can conduct driving tasks without human interventions in limited areas. Quote, if level four vehicles become widely available, it could significantly ease labor shortages, said Yuki Saji, president of Boldly. Now, I got to pause here. I've been following Yuki Saji for a long time. And he was, um, he's been, he's been kind of like the, the CEO or the big wig of SoftBank's autonomous driving unit for a long time. And they've just had so many like, we're going to do it. No, we can't. Oh, we're going to do it. No, we can't. And a lot of people who were involved with a $100 billion investment called SoftBank Vision Fund took the money and ran. And he's not part of the Vision Fund, but a lot of people just like eventually realize that they're going to have to devote so much of their life to getting it done. They have to be like Elon Musk level committed to get any of this pushed forward. They eventually just transfer out and use that experience to gain like a, a cushy job somewhere else, but not Yuki Saji. He has been, um, he's been, he's been, he's like a younger guy. He this might be like late thirties, early forties now, but he's been pushing at this for so long. And I got to just say like his commitment is noteworthy. And I really respect somebody who just sticks to that grind and tries to get it done. But I will say, is he running up against a autonomous bureaucracy? Hmm. Arma, the bus, which seats 11 people without a driver's seat, was approved to run only on a fixed route of about 800 meters around Haneda Innovation City, a large-scale commercial and business complex in Tokyo's Ota Ward near Haneda Airport. Now, that's what I mean. So, if we're going to have, like, a, if you have to invest 80 Let's just say if, if, if you have to invest oodles and oodles of money, like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and now you finally get your breakthrough. And what's the breakthrough? An 800-meter route <laughs> in a place nobody goes to. I mean, that's not really like now the public is ready to ride the autonomous bus. It's like, okay, 
The bureaucracy is just placing it. It's finally on the road. You got that step done in Japan. Good for you. But is it really like, oh, now we're going to finally experience a massive return on our investment now that we're allowed to run around on an 800-meter stretch of road in a place of town nobody goes to? Mm, I'm not sure. Um, the bus has been operating on a regular schedule inside the complex since September 2020 as a Level 2 vehicle. Uh, it, it says... I'm not going to go read the last, the last paragraph here. If automated, sorry, the, the, if automated driving becomes more widespread, people from outside the bus industry would be able to participate in the sector. Saji said with level four buses, we can create even more diverse employment opportunities in the operational areas. So, We'll see. Um, it says like easing driver shortage is another one. Um, there's another, the, the company is also operating a level two bus, uh, but that's not really that big of a deal. Level two. It's like that's Tesla has been doing that for like a long time now. Um, and so on and so forth. So it's like, okay, Great. It's not just a bureaucratic trap. There's a physical object on the road. It's level four. It's high tech. You can drive around, but it's just like, okay, it carries 11 people on a hundred, on an 800 meter stretch somewhere that nobody goes to. It's a bureaucratic, it's still in the bureaucratic stages. And at this point, the society 5.0 field has been overall captured by crazy uh, business lobbyists and bureaucrats who are aiming to accomplish their SDG goals. So we'll see how long they, how far they let this go, but it might be a baby step, but it's not like it's a major step. So that's, that's the one part of, um, the, of Japan society 5.0. I wanted to capture today capture. The other one is called, uh, now I don't know if this is society 5.0, to be honest, I'm putting it in here today. Cause I don't want to create a new category for this, but this is called, this is the, like I'm going right to, uh, Jap J Japanese government websites here. So it's not like, uh, listen to Mr. Crazy. This is called from the cabinet office of Japan. And I'll be posting these links at matthewpmbigelow.com with some photos for you to see as well. So you can kind of, I'm going to be saying some things and it sounds nuts, but it's not me. I'm just reading what the Japanese government says they want to do. This is called the Moonshot Research and Development Program. Now, they have all sorts of ideas and overall it fits into the Japan, Japan Society 5.0 scope. Goal one, overcoming limitations of body, brain, space, and time. What? Now, now we're getting into the uh, bureaucratic side of things, right? What? Overcoming limitations of time? What does that even mean? Goal two, ultra early disease prediction and intervention. Okay. But that does mean constant monitoring and surveillance of a population's um, health conditions. Sure. Number Goal number three, co-evolution of AI and robots. And the picture here is like an Einstein-like scientist with a light bulb beaming beside him, uh, 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 giving a whole bonsai gesture alongside a robot beside a bunch of graphs that have been kind of shittily painted. Goal number four, cool earth and clean earth. And this is the carbon capture. So they want to prevent 
the heating of the earth. <laughs> this is like Dr. Evil, Austin Powers type stuff. Goal number five, sustainable food supply and consumption. And it shows like robots making food and, you know, people like enjoying a f like a, a ice cream cone, but the ice cream cone's been made of like a vial of liquid and bugs. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. So the I've been covering the bug eating for a while now, and you can see like it goes right to the top, the cabinet office of Japan. Goal number six, fault-tolerant universal quantum computer. That makes sense to me. That's an interesting idea. Goal number seven, to age 100 without health concerns. Well, okay, sure. I'm going to skip goal number eight, and now we have goal number nine, increasing peace of mind and vitality. Okay, that just means um, communicating with your doctor uh, on Skype. Goal number eight, controlling and modifying the weather. Goal number eight, controlling and modifying the weather. And this has, the image here, is of a plane spraying a bunch of, of, of things onto, a, onto some clouds, and then the clouds rain it down, and then there's also a boat that's probably like a, some sort of solar sail thing. Now... If you talk about weather modification, many people just immediately go tinfoil hat. But there are just countless and countless and countless and countless people of higher rank. John Brennan, I think, like the old U.S. guy. Who, who, is, who is John Brennan? I might have to pause this here because I wanted to include this. So here we go, pausing. All right, John Brennan, um, who is the head of the CIA, at a meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations, mentioned geoengineering, specifically stratospheric aerosol injection. That's what he said. And he like this this is a website called metabunk.org. And it's just like um people think that the government is already doing this, but the John Brennan didn't say they were doing it, they said they want to do it. And that's the debunk. So so we're not doing it, but they want to do it. That's what we can say according to these facts. And you can watch this video of him talking about stratospheric aerosol um, injection, SAI, to um, uh, monitor and control the weather. And that's from 2016. So that's really high up. But of course they say, well, you're talking about chemtrails? That's a conspiracy theory. I'm like, I'm not talking about chemtrails. I'm not talking about chemtrails. I'm saying that there are government initiatives <laughs> that are totally crazy called Japan's goal number eight for their moonshot program, controlling and modifying the weather. Now let's just go and see and look at how they want to do this. So I'm, the, I'm just going to read from the uh, moonshot program from the uh, research and development program um, from the Japanese website. And this is called... Realization of a society safe from the threat of extreme winds and rains by controlling and modifying the weather by 2050. Now, this is kind of the aspect I'm talking about of how much of Japan Society 5.0 or what it could be, uh, just the things that work in our lives being completely 
disregarded in, in everything in Japan now is like, it has to be 2030. It has to be 2050. You can't have it now. You can't have it now. We need 30 years of development and then maybe you can have it, but it'll be our control. It'll be our control and you will receive it whether you like it or not. Now, the program director for Gold Number 8, his name is called Miyoshi Takemasa, uh, team leader for Center for Compute- Computational Science Data Assimilation Research Team, Riken. Uh, Riken's like an amazing, uh, you got to be really smart to work at Riken, and you got to be able to like understand how the sun works. That's that's how, how, how smart you got to be. So they don't hire dummies, but a lot of the times these like theoretical scientists, they don't know how to put things into things they need engineers to put the things into things and they can just be all mr science about it and say whatever they want according to their uh, computational methods and oftentimes they're right super times they're um amazingly interesting to listen to but it's always you know h- how do you make it happen that's always the thing so this is how it begins now this is a, why I mentioned that the, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals, which is all about climate change and diversity and equity, is seeping into everything in Japan from the top. And then from then, it's going to like trickle down into the masses. Outline. Global warming means that wind and flood damage caused by extreme weather events such as typhoons and torrential rains are becoming more severe and frequent. It, so this is like, this is the head of the... Uh, uh, like this is like a guy from Tokyo University, global warming. Like Jesus, like okay, uh, are you sure? Or do we call it global warming? I thought we called it climate change. So is the people are the people from Todai and the Japanese government still calling it global warming? If it is possible to change, if it is possible to change the intensity, timing, and or location of extreme weather events that lead to disasters, it may be possible to avoid or dramatically reduce the resulting damage. In this program, we will conduct R&D aimed at gaining a deeper understanding of extreme weather, which is essential for the development of weather control theory, improving weather forecasting technology such as weather modeling, data assimilation, and ensemble methods, and really and realizing weather control technology that is socially, technically, and economically feasible. <laughs> I'll be posting their goofy drawings onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. And uh, there's also a YouTube video. I'm not going to play it here just because I'm on my backup equipment, but I'll be posting the YouTube video onto MatthewPMBigelow.com as well. Message from the PD, Program Director, I guess. Our goal is to significantly reduce the damage caused by extreme windstorms and floods, which are becoming more severe due to global warming and other factors, by developing weather control technology to change the intensity, timing, and location of typhoons and torrential rains. In our research and development, we will combine control theory using numerical simulations. Oh, simulations! Control technology that applies artificial disturbances to the atmosphere. That means (laughs) man-made. And elements related to fundamental mathematics and uh, ELSI. Uh, Weather control has long been a dream of humanity, and through my leadership as PD, I hope to realize it as an open technology. So that is uh, some of those. The program director is uh, Yohei Sawada, research uh, associate professor, graduate school of engineering, the University of Tokyo. And the project manager, his name is Fudeyasu Hidenori, Director, Typhoon and Science and Technology Research Center, Institute for Multidisciplinary Sciences, Yokohama National University, Professor, Faculty of Education, Yokohama National University. And it goes on from there. So 
that's what I wanted to cover today. That's kind of the, the main crux of, of the podcast today is to say, well, there's the moonshot directives and it's like, is, high, is society 5.0 where the, the government just says, nah, we don't want to provide, we'll just throw it a bus here and there and maybe a drone, but we don't know. But we just want to control the weather. So we're going to use our money and all your money and we're going to take the money and we're going to control the weather by 2050, guys. Okay? I don't know about that. Are these guys high or not high? High. Or not high. Sounds pretty high to me, man. I'll just cover a few more headlines before going to the next topic here. Uh, Japan to introduce electronic arrest warrants, interrogation records. Uh, that could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. And, you know, if you get hacked by the Yakuza, can they hack? Can the Yakuza hack? The Yakuza hack. Toyota's hydrogen sharing network may let you fill up your car at home. Uh, now, the hydrogen uh, issue here, I'm all for it. I think if you can just have more resources powering more things, I don't want to have like the era of gasoline is over. Now it's the era of electricity. I, I like the diversification method where it's like, no, we have electricity, we have gas, we have gasoline, we have hydrogen, and we just have all of these options available to us. And we're using them all and we're making, we're just using them because having all of these options available all the time is probably a lot better than just being totally reliant on the um, electrical grid or being totally reliant on the oil industry, right? But one of the major things behind um, hydrogen is that how do you um, get the whole infrastructure in there? So ships might be using it where you have like on, on your coastline, just giant amounts of hydrogen available and ships come and go and they they power up using the hydrogen already there. But how do you get all the pipes into the cities, into people's apartments? And so uh, I wonder how that's going to happen. I'm not going to go into it too much right now because it says it may let you fill up your car at home. So it's a future thing and it, they look like they're, they're getting on it, but it's not a major thing for today. The other one is... Um, Japan Digital Minister hints at move to make my number ID cards mandatory. Now, the um, digital minister, Mr. Taro Kono, is known to be tech savvy. And all that means is he is um, using Twitter, which is something that anybody can use. Uh, I used to kind of like the guy. I haven't really seen him um, do anything or exhibit any kind of technological savviness. So he's kind of propped up there. He's in deep with the World Economic Forum as well. If you've listened to the previous podcasts, you know that at the um, G7 summit, some of their side meetings, uh, they, the WEF at a public-private partnership with the Japanese government will have like a, a Taro Kono robot, and it's like it's like a clunky animatronics thing. And he's like, welcome to region city time, you know, whatever that phrase means in Japanese. And uh, then it's like, wow, there's the robot of him. It's like, it's just all cheap. It's all cheap dog and pony show, um, uh, smoke and mirrors type of stuff. So uh, he, he wants to make these My Number cards mandatory. And the My Number card, I have one. I went and got it. And then I used a facial recognition system to get it. So uh, 
the government has the like these facial recognition systems, but whenever I have to use the my number card, I have to go and do a bunch of paperwork. I got to go and fill out a form and go to the mailbox and go to the convenience store and buy a stamp or something like that. And so we're not sure what this um is this like a new digital ID that they're aiming to use? I'm not exactly sure. I can read a little bit from it. This comes to us from the Mainichi Japan's National Dailies in 1922, published on December 11th. And of course, we're recording this on December 13th. Lucky number 13, Japan Digital Minister hints at move to make my number ID cards mandatory. Japanese Digital Minister Taro Kono said there could be discussions on making it mandatory to obtain a my number individual identification card in the future. During a December 10th Fuji TV program, Kono expressed the view that there could be talks of making it mandatory to obtain the ID cards when there remain only a small number of people across Japan who have not applied for them once the government has encouraged people to voluntarily obtain my number cards by promoting their convenience. Yes, if you voluntarily get it, we won't enforce it. But if you don't voluntarily get it, we will enforce it, possibly. However, he also explains, it's still a bit early to say at which point we will start talks about making it mandatory. According to the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications, approximately 91.36 million mind number cards have been issued as of November 30th, covering about 72.8% of all citizens in Japan. And again, this comes back to the idea that Society 5.0 has been captured by this like legacy bureaucracy system in Japan where it's just, you know, they they can use the facial recognition technology on me to get the my number card, but whenever I have to use the my number card, it's still within like the legacy paperwork system. So, it will see it's not a convenient system and then people's medical information gets leaked and they they incorporate the wrong things or like it, it, when when it comes to siloed information it's great in Japan. Like they're so good at record keeping, but with these new, like, um, uh, you know, cloud-based file sharing and AI and stuff like that, they all use like third-party um, suppliers, and, and so the the format is not usual to the people who are used to siloing this information. So they click a button, and it like they're using different kanji because it's a third-party thing, and it sends the information to all the wrong people. And then you go in to get like your medical thing that you need from the hospital, and it's like somebody else's medical records that you get, or you look online at your statement, and suddenly it's somebody else's statement that appears to you. So. But they're making it mandatory. So it's like a very flawed system, and it doesn't really work well on the citizen level. I've used it a lot. I want it to be good. Like, I'm a... I'm actually like a guy who wants all this stuff to work. I hate paperwork. But when you're like, hey, we have this new digital system, I'm like, great. I don't want to do any of the paperwork. Like, But it's paperwork on the screen. I'm like, well, I don't want to do the paperwork. And now with like the My Number card, it's like, hey, we got this digital system for your digital life or the Digital Society 5.0. Great. Sign me up. Okay. We're going to need you to use the fax machine and we're going to need you to phone here. And then you have to go in person over there. And then when the company at the end of the year that you're working for, they're going to send you some documentation and you need to go to the convenience store to photocopy your My Number card and send it back to them to make sure that it's up to date. It's like, this isn't digital at all except for you who get to just put a facial recognition camera on a 
on a computer somewhere to make me register for the stupid card. So, so far, giant fail, and it's going to continue to be giant fails because everybody in that fucking place is so old, they have no idea that they need to actually just get away from the paperwork-based society and make it like an interactive website where you can clearly click on one side of the screen or another with very clear intentions behind it of what it means without having like lines and lines and lines and lines of what it means when you click each box and it makes everybody confused and angry with bureaucratic language that's been siphoned through like 9,000 people in some office somewhere in Kasumi Gaseki. Come on, people. Last one. ANA Holdings, Joby, partner with Nomura Real Estate Development for Vertaports in Japan. Now, Again, I'm putting this at the end because I'm tired of like, oh, they're going to do it, and then they don't. Oh, they're going to do it, and then they don't. But vertiports are those like uh, short-term commute like um, helicopters, uh, battery-operated with AI and stuff like that. You get in, and you fly 20 minutes across the city, and you, you're where you need to be. You don't need to take the subway. You don't need to fight traffic. And uh, you go as like groups of 10 or 11 in these giant drone type things and you get to know, get to where you need to be. Tokyo, Santa Cruz, California, from japantoday.com via ANA Holdings Inc. So this is a press release essentially. ANA Holdings and Joby Aviation Inc., a company developing all-electric aircraft for commercial passenger service have announced a partnership with Nomura Real Estate Development Co. Limited, one of Japan's largest real estate developers on the development of takeoff and landing infrastructure to support the commercialization of its electric air taxi service across Japan. As part of the agreement, the three companies will jointly explore, so they're just exploring, the design, location, operation, and financing of Vertaport locations that will serve as the backbone of future commercial air taxi services in Japan, the partners will also engage with communities to ensure air taxi services are welcomed by communities and tailored to fit their desires. It goes on from there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a press release, but um, uh, overall, I think like uh, short trips on these things would be would be beneficial, would be nice to have, or even like... Um, if for some reason, like there's two smaller suburbs that don't have good connections between each other, you can get there like 20 minutes by flight. Maybe there's like a small mountain or like hills or a river or just some sort of natural landmarkings that don't fare well for our current systems. These things could be very welcome, I would assume. Um, I mean, look at the, um, if you look, if you just Google or look up images on your browser of choice, uh, Japan train network, or sorry, Tokyo train network, and then as well, Tokyo subway network, you're going to see the most insane puzzle you've ever seen in your whole life. It was all designed by humans digging tunnels to create weird infrastructure, but we still can't do it now. I think it's because of the bureaucratic capture. That's honestly what I think. We don't have engineers. We have lawyers. We have lobbyists and uh, people that want to just kind of seize the money and make long-term commitments like such as controlling the weather by 2050, which is, of course, like an insane idea. It's kind of interesting, but are you are you going to control the weather or are you just going to make things worse? <laughs> uh, 
as opposed to just like, let's have cool shit flying around in the sky. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be um, the leadership is lacking. The desire to push it through is lacking. And everybody's uh, hem-hawing and wondering if it, the timing is right. And, I don't know. They could be right. I am just a podcaster. That is Japan Society 5.0 for today. The capture is real. There is some movement inside of it. But overall, we are entering a whole new bologna sandwich with extra sushi in the Japan Society 5.0 field. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. What? Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Oh. Society 5.0. A technology-based, human-centered society. Industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone anytime. Not anymore. We will have access to the latest get a medical bus. advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. A place you never go to. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities. As we control the weather by 2050. Society 5.0. For the betterment of human lives. Oh, well, thank you, Japan Society 5.0. By the way, have you ever considered donating to the Japan Web Podcast? Of course you have. Now it's easier than ever. Just go to the website, MatthewPMBigelow.com. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. We have the show notes, we have the photos. We have the links. Everything that we're talking about is listed there. You can also make some donations. Now, Japan Today is, of course, a source here, but we also have our own ways of doing things, and that is through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. We also have the podcasting 2.0 infrastructure through apps such as Podverse, CurioCaster, Podfans, and more. It's, a, it's an attempt to get ahead of big tech censorship, which is ongoing and worsening, except on platforms like X, formerly known as Twitter. But with these uh, alternative uh, podcasting apps or new podcasting apps, it allows listeners to send Bitcoin directly to podcasters. Uh, through the form of Satoshis. They're called Boostergrams. There's all sorts of ways to do this. Get rid of your legacy app. Import your podcasts into a new app called Podverse, Curiocaster. There's so many. Just check them out. And also, you can uh, fuel us some Bitcoin through there as well. That would be at uh, the Japan What Podcast. Anyways, just go to Japan Today. Or not Japan Today. <laughs> I keep remembering that. I'm on vacation. Go on to... Matthew, pmbigelow.com. Send us some traffic, check out the links, photos, and more. And if you are so kind over this holiday season, feeling generous, send us a donation, will you? Thanks. All right. What are we going to do next? Um, oh, let's do eat the bugs. Are you hungry? I'm going to eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just going to eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. 
All right, so uh, considering that it, we're, Japan is just like down the rabbit hole of SDGs, uh, there's all sorts of ways of promoting bug eating in Japan, and this podcast has been covering it for about a year now. Uh, for the most part, though, the trend has been like we're going to target junior high school and high school students by saying bug eating is a part of your culture. You had an- ancestors rummaging around in the rivers eating these water bugs. And then the the weird, you know, SDG people step in and say, that's why we've set up a factory farm on the outskirts of your town making crickets. And we're going to pulverize them into powder and put them into your bread and gyoza because that's your culture. But it's expanded out since then, and some people are trying to be entrepreneurial with the approach of eating bugs. It's not catching on, but they're trying. They are trying. But certain people interested in promoting um, this 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 disgusting habit of eating things is ongoing, and it's it's not stopping. Ecology, uh, the name of a company, launched a nutrition bar containing crickets that promotes health benefits by containing iron and zinc. This is from uh, the NikkeiBP.co.jp. And, of course, Nikkei is a captured organization. They are all in on the insanity that the West is promoting. Uh, This comes to us from Shinjuku, Tokyo. The CEO, his name is Seiya uh, Ashikari. Ecology, which produces food ingredients using edible crickets, announced on December 6th, 2023, that it will release a new nutrition bar containing cricket powder. A press briefing was held. The company's uh, nutrition bar containing cricket powder uh, contains high amounts of iron and zinc, and the company promotes the health benefits of these ingredients. On the same day, the company also announced that it had confirmed that cricket powder promotes immunostimulating effect of lactic acid bacteria and expressed its intention to focus on developing products with immunostimulating effects in the future. Doesn't that sound delicious? I need a snack. Uh, Of course, I would like my snack to be tasty, especially if it's like immunostimulating. If it has cricket powder that contains high amounts of iron and zinc, my mouth is just watering right now. I don't know about you, or are you sitting there confused, wondering who is this product for? Who would be interested in this product? Why is this product being released? Whereas if I said... Oh, here's a packet of cashew nuts and a bottle of beer. You might be like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Or I might even say, like, here's a ham sandwich with extra cheese, and I just toasted it for you. How's that sound? Oh, yeah, not bad, not bad. Would you like to have a salad today? Not really. I'm putting a lot of bacon in it. Okay. What about this cricket thing, this cricket bar with iron and zinc for immunostimulating effects. What the hell are you talking about, bro? That is Eat the Bugs Today. It's always insane and never tasty. I'm gonna eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just gonna eat them one at a time though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm gonna go go catch that one. We'll finish the one that you have in your mouth first. Just a quick uh, die for the war segment today. Nothing major. 
Um, and this covers more like the Taiwan side of things because this podcast focuses on the Indo-Pacific and from Japan's point of view, what does that mean when we have conflict in the East Asian uh, Sea with, with other nations and, and so on. East East China Sea, sorry. Um, one thing is that uh, Tsai, the leader of uh, Taiwan, seeks support for Taiwan joining uh, TPP, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in talks with Japan Envoy. I don't know. Could be good. I don't. I don't really. I, I remember the TPP was supposed to be the worst thing ever, and it was pretty crazy. And uh, I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the TPP right now. Uh, the other one, though, is um, just a quick little analysis of right now. The, um, the there's a lot of Chinese aggression going on in the uh, Philippines. Uh, some of those old shores, uh, shoals that they have, like the Scarborough Shore and all that. Now, China's claiming the basically the entire uh, South China Sea as its own, uh, but like the Philippines are like a thousand kilometers from China, and now like China's claiming some of these areas in this sea, and uh, the Philippines are like this is basically ours. It's so close to us. Why would you say it's yours just because you said so? But the Chinese uh, CCP has been militarizing a lot of these little atolls there, and they consider it part of their territory and land. The reason I bring this up today is that a lot of people are focusing on Israel and Gaza, and those are conflicts that just go on and on and on and on. But the United States basically is like uh, pretty close to the Philippines, and they are if the Philippines gets attacked by China in a more, in a more aggressive way, that could, that could, that could really trigger some massive shit going on uh, between um, militaries and and navies between uh, Japan, between South Korea, between Taiwan with America's backing against China. Um, It's not really getting there right now, but there's giant flotillas of Chinese ships waiting to, water cannon uh, passing Filipino ships that are going to resupply some of their 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 servicemen uh, out on these shoals and stuff like that. So it's it's getting actually really tense. The media isn't covering it very much. And I actually wonder, like, the United States can't be trusted as a partner or ally right now, considering what they did to Afghanistan and how much money they wasted there and what they're doing in, a, in Ukraine right now. How many millions of people have left Ukraine and, like, three, how many hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian men have died in the meat grinder of the Donetsk? And the United States is going to walk away from it most likely they'll be like sorry we tried you took our hundreds of billions of dollars and now you have nothing oh well <laughs> let's work together in the future to preserve our democracies um and given that uh china is such a massive power right now and a massive economic power i'm not sure if china attacks the philippines if the united states would respond appropriately they might even just say whatever philippines we tried. Uh, here's a ship, but we're busy with Israel right now. Good luck. But that, you know, so there's this there's this really weird crux point where it's moving. Taiwan's the focus of um, of China right now to recapture this this so-called rogue province. But I'm wondering if the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy is, is like if they feel too trapped by Taiwan's allies. Uh, directly converging into the Taiwanese Straits as China's trying to overtake Taiwan. I wonder if China right now is trying to push the border 
of contention or of flashpoint, uh, the flashpoint initiative to the, to the Philippines area where it would put the Western nations more or Western allied nations or American allied nations more on a defensive front to the Philippines. And then China could move into Taiwan uh, as like a rear guard move. So it moves into the Philippines, which means that all these people focus in on the Philippines. And then China uses that now that the, 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 the front line is now much further south, much further away from Taiwan. China can just kind of move in and then take over that place as such. There, there was also, we don't know much about the amount of um, CCP sympathies that exist within Taiwan that doesn't get reported on a lot. But apparently a, um, a, a pilot from the Taiwanese Air Force or something like that was uh, captured trying to sell a or try, trying to defect to the Chinese uh, to the CCP um, with a Chinook helicopter, those giant helicopters with the the twin rotary blades, uh, and and so we don't really know what's going on there. So that's just kind of today's um, war perspective: is is the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy trying to move the front line away from Taiwan and into the Philippines to try to force the United States into a response to the Philippines, which would put a lot of action into the Philippines and move it away from Taiwan. And then the Chinese People's Liberation Army or with other Chinese diplomatic efforts would move into Taiwan and kind of annex it. There could be an annexation of Taiwan. That's kind of a major card that's in play that not a lot of people are taken care of so there, there's that so that's today's war segment not very much but just um a, a couple of kernels to consider over the christmas holidays die for the war and the body moves die for the good for the good die for the war die for the war all right, we're uh, well. We're kind of going over today. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this one for the last one for today, and this one comes to us from the the de-dollarization movement, and we're just gonna play this song for de-dollarization. <laughs> Where's your money at? Gone. It's being eaten up. Cause they printed it all. <laughs> now, um, there's major major movements on, on behalf of China to um, incorporate or promote its usage of its own CBDC, its own digital currency abroad, and and so on. And Singapore, uh, you know, Singapore's filled with Chinese people. Uh, they're very interesting there. It's like they're English speaking Chinese. They're kind of a little snobbier, but I'm not sure anymore. China, this comes to us from where? Which which news site? This is scmp.com. That's the South China Morning Post, I believe. So this comes to us, and it says, China, Singapore, to let each other's tourists pay with digital yuan as Beijing seeks to globalize its ECNY currency. Written by uh, Xin Mei Shen. Xin Mei Shen. 
Your pronunciation is terrible, Mr. Bigiro. Tourists from China and Singapore will be able to pay with the ECNY when traveling to both countries as part of a new pilot program in a breakthrough for Beijing's efforts to promote the cross-border use of the digital yuan. The Monetary Authority of Singapore said in a statement that its project with the Digital Currency Institute of the People's Bank of China would allow travelers from both countries to use the digital version of the Chinese currency in tourist spending. Authorities in Singapore said the scheme was expected to, quote, enhance convenience for travelers when making purchases during their overseas travel, end quote, without disclosing further details. The pilot forms part of a series of initiatives announced by the two governments on Thursday at the annual Joint Council for Bilateral Cooperation in China's northern coastal metropolis, Tianjin. During the event, I'll just read this last paragraph. Total ECNY transactions grew to 950 million yuan or $133 million USD in June, reaching a cumulative value of 1.8 trillion yuan. Uh, compared to 100 billion yuan in August 2022, former People's Bank of China Governor Yi Gang said in July this year. As of last year, 5.6 million merchants across 26 pilot cities had registered to use the digital yuan. Beijing has also been experimenting with the use of ECNY outside of mainland China as the internationalization of yuan becomes more urgent amid rising geopolitical tensions. China last year completed a multi-country trial named Embridge that used central bank digital currencies to settle trades with Hong Kong, Thailand, and the United Arab Emirates. So, <laughs> the CBDCs are coming. They are coming strong. Now, if you think that uh, that your country is not going to engage in CBDCs or link up cross-border transactions with China or Saudi Arabia, I don't know what you got going on, but there is a massive movement to get away from the United States dollar right now. Now, I am a Canadian in Canada right now, but I live in Japan, and Japan and Canada are tied so heavily to the USD. As soon as I see all this stuff pop up, I'm like, hmm, well, if... No wonder the coffee isn't as good as it used to be. If Brazil and all these other coffee makers with Russia providing the fertilizer, you know, China trying to buy it all up, if they're trying to be friendly with each other economically speaking or, you know, from the position of uh, bilateral trade, they might give each other prefer preferential treatment now moving forward. And they don't need a lot of money. Uh, they don't have this giant uh, top-tier middle-class, upper-middle-class society like the most of the G7 does. And uh, we'll see what happens, but I thought that was very interesting. Singapore is not a joke either when it comes to making crucially important financial decisions. It's basically what it's known for since its founding, and it's a great place. It's super safe. So uh, we'll see what happens there with the ongoing movement of de-dollarization and, uh, and so on. So anyways, you found it. Thank you for listening. Oh, what should I say? I'll, I'll, I'll play out that song with the daddy long legs. Money! The CBDCs are coming, my friends. All right. So thank you for tuning in to the Japan What Podcast, episode 124. 
You found it is the Japan What Podcast coming at you from the hybrid studios in Comox, BC, Canada. Until next time, everybody. The armpit of Canada. Ja mata ne. Matthew P. Andrew Podcast.